Glad you're all here. Let's have a seat and uh, we'll uh, open up 1 Corinthians together. Um, We're in the midst of a new series. We actually kind of kicked it off a couple of weeks ago, um, but uh, the series is called The Cross. Um, And the theme verse for this series, which comes straight from the book, is for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's God's power to us who are being saved. And you know, there's a lot of question over salvation right now, like how are we going to be saved? We're in the midst of a pandemic. Will I make it through? Um, Will my loved ones make it through? There's a lot of questions and there's a lot of foolishness out there. There's a lot of people claiming understanding and then you find out, oh, they didn't have the understanding they thought. And we've seen this back and forth. And this is no different than it ever has been. This is no different. And, and so as I thought through what are we going to do kind of starting this year, 1 Corinthians is one of the books we haven't went through yet. We've gone through a lot of books. There's about 14 books of the Bible we haven't preached through as a church over the last several years. And so this is one of those that we want to dive into. And I thought, you know, what book do, do we need that has like a practical, focused, straightforward message to the church, us, and then the church broader so that as you guys go out from here, you can communicate to others. And 1 Corinthians, man, is that book. Like, it is Paul writing to a church, a church in Corinth. Corinth was a major trading city. It was actually a way to avoid bad weather. So if you went around the southern part of Greece, if you went around the southern part, you got in the weather problems and reefs and other things. But if you took the path through Corinth, it was a shortcut and it was safer. And it was a major port city, huge city. It was a city that was full of idolatry. Aphrodite's temple in the city of Corinth had over 1,000 female and male prostitutes that would go out every night and walk the streets and sell themselves to come to the temple and worship by having sex. That was in Corinth. Corinth had the second greatest athletic games in the entire Roman Empire. The Olympics was first. The second was in Corinth. And they had this, these games that they would have and would draw tens of thousands of people to do these games each year. They had gladiators and they had all kinds of stuff. It was the, it was the epitome of the modern city with full of anything and everything you wanted to get your hands on, you could get it in Corinth. And Paul goes there to plant this church. He goes there to, because God had asked him to go and For a Jew like Paul, who was a Pharisee at one time, to go to a place like Corinth would have been unheard of. But again, God is faithful to take his message about what he's done on the cross and his resurrection to the ends of the earth. And so Paul goes to Corinth. He meets a couple. They begin, we looked, and you can read this in Acts chapter 18, the story of Paul and Corinth and what happens. And God is so faithful to bless Paul's ministry. Paul doesn't take a salary while he's there. He works as a tent maker while he's in Corinth so that they don't, like, have an excuse not to listen to him, he says. And so we find Paul doing this ministry in Corinth. He leaves. He leaves some people in charge. And the reason he's writing this letter is because it's a mess now. He left a healthy church, and then he gets a report back saying how incredibly messed up it is. It hasn't even been that long, right? Maybe just a couple of years, and they're already doing and saying and crazy stuff. 
And so he writes this letter out of a great love and concern for where he sees this church headed and knowing that the church in Corinth, because of its wealth and its influence, will spread to the other churches. That the Corinthian church is a place where people would come around the world to do debates. It was an intellectual hub of the Roman Empire. And he knew that if the church in Corinth doesn't get it right, it's going to spread everywhere. And so he writes this letter to them. And this week, what we want to look at in this letter is the fact that Paul writes to them, he talks to them, and he says, look, there is foolishness and there is understanding. There is foolishness and there is understanding. And you better be careful because you can become a fool very easily. And you can become someone who thinks you understand, but you don't. Because there's things you're holding on to in this world. There are things that you won't surrender to God, and now you'll become a fool. And so Paul wants to be sure that this Corinthian church understands how they're foolish and how they're understanding. He wants to show them where their understanding is off and where they're not acting foolish. And it is a brutal letter. But he starts with this, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. He starts the book off saying these things. To God's church at Corinth. So Paul doesn't say my church. He says this is God's church. Every local church is God's church. It should be God's church. It may not be. We find out. But he says to God's church in Corinth. He says you are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints. That's an encouragement. He says you've been sanctified. You've been made holy because of the cross. Because of what Jesus did for you. And now what he continues to do. He's making you holy. And he asks the question. Do you see yourself as a saint? Or do you see yourself trying to earn sainthood? Because if you're trying to earn it. Then you don't understand the cross. And you don't understand the gospel. Then he goes on to say. Grace and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. He reminds them that it's all about God's grace and God's peace. And you can't get it yourself. You can't earn grace. You can't earn peace. They are gifts given to you by God, regardless of the circumstances you find yourself in. Then he goes on and he says, I always thank God for you because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus. He's getting ready to tell them some things that sound a lot like hatred. When you read the rest of the book, Paul is like scathing and he's saying things that seem like, ouch, that's really painful. But he wants them to know that the reason he's doing it is out of a gratitude that they even say they believe, that they even want to follow Christ in the culture that they're in and the mess they're in. Then he goes on and he says, you've been enriched in everything, in all speech and knowledge, which this church had been. They had the best teachers from all over the world coming. You do not lack any spiritual gift. He says that the Spirit was moving in them and they had all the spiritual gifts working in this church. He says, He prayed that God would strengthen them. And he said, he prayed that they would see they were blameless before Christ because of the cross. And then he says, God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, let me tell you, right there is where most churches today stop. You'll go to a Sunday service and you'll hear any one of these things in this passage, how God wants to give you victory or strength about God's grace or God's peace. And then they'll say, oh, And we just want you to feel better, now leave and come back next week and you'll hear this again. And again. And again. Without any discipleship. Without any questioning of like, Paul could have just ended his letter here and said, there, I just wanted to write you a good letter. Just reminded of those good things. Now you just, you go be a good person. You you go trust God now. Paul knows that doesn't work. 
Paul knows that, yes, you need to understand and believe these things, that these are the bedrock foundation, which is why he starts his letter off with this, but he, but he gets ready to go deeper because he says, look, these things are absolutely true in Christ and what he's done on the cross, but, but I'm going to have to pull this apart because there's deception and you guys are believing in false grace and false peace. There are people running around saying they're saints and they're not. There are people running around thinking that they've been enriched and they're not giving and they're not gracious to others. He lays all of this out. He says there are people walking around like they have great wisdom, writing books and speech, and their, their lifestyle doesn't match it. And he gets ready to lay all this out. So yes, he gives them a foundation, but then he says this. Verse 10. I urge you, brothers. He calls them brothers. Look at that. That's my underline, by the way. It's not underlined in the Bible. Brothers. Brothers and sisters, he says there's a difference and a difference in relationship between those who are family and those who aren't, right? We know this biblically. We know this practically. You don't just go out and invite all the kids in your neighborhood to come sleep at your house. You would get arrested, right? Like, like you're responsible for your family first. It doesn't mean you don't care about other children. It doesn't mean you don't make offers. But it means when you step out, there are authority structures you have to step into. Like the fact they have parents you have to talk to. You can't just take kids off the street and have them sleep in your house and feed them. And so Paul says, look, I urge you brothers. That means this is a family. That means there's authority structures Paul is going to talk about and refer to as he goes into this letter. And he says... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first authority structure. I'm not urging you because me, Paul, is telling you this. I'm not urging you just because I want things to go better and I'm tired of having fights in the church. I am telling you that you've got to understand the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life and your identity in him. Because if you don't get that, you're going to be open to all this mess I'm getting ready to tell you. Then he says, I want all of you, that all of you agree in what you say. That there be no divisions among you, and that you be unified with the same, there's the word, understanding, and same convictions. Now, unity is something people talk about all the time. Churches talk about unity. We live in a culture where really unity doesn't mean unity around the Lord Jesus Christ and around his word. What unity means in our culture and even our Christian culture, are you ready for this? Unity means I don't have to do anything hard. We just all get along. You do you, I do me. We just all get along. Don't worry about understanding. Don't worry about conviction. You you just do you, I do me. And you know what? In the end, God will work it all out. He'll have grace and it'll all be fine. Can I just tell you, when you read the rest of this letter, you know that is not what Paul is saying in this statement. When he talks about unity and understanding, he he unpacks this verse, the rest of the book. So he starts with a foundation, he goes to this verse, and then the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians is basically unpacking this statement all the way through, saying this is how you're to understand this situation. This is how you're supposed to understand this. This is the biblical understanding and, the, and under the authority of Christ how this should look. And he unpacks it as clearly as you can get. It's why 1 Corinthians is a book that we don't often hear preached and it's a book we don't like to talk about often. Because Paul doesn't mess around. Because he understands the cost of false unity. He understands the cost of compromise. 
And he's seeing it happen in this church, and it breaks his heart. And can I just tell you, that's the world we live in today. We live in a world where we are so concerned about unity and, and, and getting along that we don't take a stand, and here's the key, at our own peril and cost. Look at what, if, if, if Paul didn't mean this, one of the things we teach in our church, real quick, is we teach three levels of belief. Conviction, persuasion, opinion, level belief. And one of the statements that I came up with a lot of years ago was, die for your convictions, teach your persuasions, Keep your opinions to yourself. That's one of the ways to have unity and understanding. It is be willing to die for the convictions in Scripture that if you do this or you don't believe this, your salvation or at least your understanding as Christ as Lord is called into question based on the written word. Those are beliefs you can't die for. There are persuasion-level beliefs. Paul's going to get into that in just a second. There are beliefs that we have that we're persuaded to believe, but it's not so essential that I can't disagree. A good one is like Presbyterians, specifically Presbyterian Church of America, PCA churches. They believe in covenant baptism, baptizing infants into the covenant. I don't believe that. I don't see that in Scripture. But baptism is one of those issues for me that, yes, as a family, I'm going to say we do this this way as a church family, so we're going to ask you and persuade you to do it with us, but it doesn't mean you're not saved if you don't do it. Your salvation isn't called into question. And then on the opinion, can I just say where all the fights happen, you ready for this, are right in between persuasion and conviction. It's we take something that's a persuasion and we move it into a conviction in such a way that we become so judgmental that we're the only church, we're the only ones that do it right, we're the only denomination, and it is an absolute disaster. Now, does that mean we don't have convictions? No. There are families in this church that don't have green beans in their home. I don't know if you know about that. I don't judge them for that. I like green beans. Right? I don't judge them at all. There's no biblical reason not to have green beans, I don't think. I mean, I haven't found it in Scripture. But there's an opinion-level belief. And all these things we keep trying to raise instead of saying, okay, and what Paul does in 1 Corinthians, he says, I'm going to give you conviction. I'm going to give you bedrock conviction to build your life on. And I'm going to call this out. And can I just tell you, most of us try to find a way around conviction belief, to move it to persuasion so we don't have to die. We don't have to suffer. We don't have to take a stand. Or we want to move persuasion up to conviction so I can tell others how to die because I don't want to die. So I can tell you what to do, but I'm not going to do it. And so Paul lays this out so amazing. And then he goes on and he says there should be no divisions. No divisions among you. We live in a world that is constantly right now being divided. And Christians are on the front lines of helping it. We've got to stop. We've got to know our Bible and understand what Scripture says and believe in an eternity and believe in God and believe that he is bigger and stronger and mightier than the life we want for ourselves here and now. And if we don't get that as Christians, the world is hopeless because we're the only ones that have the message. And if we keep participating in the divisiveness I'm not talking about convictions. I'm not talking about laying out convictions and saying, hear how I am convicted. I'm talking about divisiveness. We are going to, why should the world believe our message? 
We need to really wrestle with this. And so over the next several weeks, I pray that if you're not here, you'll go back and listen, that you'll read this book, that you will wrestle with what Paul writes, what God has Paul write. If you think that Paul's saying that we just need to do unity at all costs, look at what Jesus said in Luke. Jesus in Luke 12, 49 said, I came to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already set ablaze. But I have a baptism to be baptized with and how it consumes me until it's finished. He's talking about basically the cross. He's talking about a baptism of being baptized death, right, by the blood of Christ. We're washed clean in the blood of Christ. He goes on, he says, do you think that I came here to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Well, but Paul just said we weren't supposed to have divisions. Jesus said he came to bring division. So who's right? See, we take a word like division and we don't rightly divide it. We take a word like division and say, well, that means we can't have any division. We can't, we all have to get along. And no, it means you have to rightly divide. And so what Jesus is saying is I came to rightly divide everything and those who don't want to rightly divide are going to be divided against me. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to the cross because the message that I'm bringing, the world, the Romans, the Jews, everybody's going to say, don't like that message, let's kill him. And they put him on the cross. And Jesus knows it. And then he goes on, he says, from now on, five in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. It's not that Jesus came and he's like, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to make everybody unhappy and divided. He said, my presence doesn't allow for another option. If you truly walk with me and want me and I'm first in your life, that is going to divide everything else you see through your lens of your life. It will be divisive and it will cost you. Because you know what Jesus did when he was dividing? He didn't bring a sword and kill everybody yet. He gave his life and allowed his own body to be divided, cut in two basically, gotten rid of for us. See, so often division for us is I've got to win an argument. I come out on top. Jesus said, no, 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 I'm going to come out on bottom. Look at what happened in John. Everywhere Jesus went, he caused divisions. John 7, 43, so a division occurred among the crowd because of him, because of Jesus. Again, a division took place among the Jews because of these words. In Matthew 10, 21, it says, brother will betray brother to death and a father is child. Child will even rise up against their parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one endures to the end will be delivered. See, we've got to be very careful how we divide. He goes on and he says this, and Paul gets very specific about the division he's talking about. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 11. He says, for it has been reported to me about you, my brothers. Stop for a second. How would you like to receive a letter from an authority in your life that says, I got a report from someone? What's the first question you think when you say, wait a minute, you got a report? Who, right? Did Jay report on me? He wasn't supposed to tell, right? Did my wife tell somebody? Did Jason? Like, who who told? Like, 
Like Paul's like, I got a report. Can I just tell you, there's a difference between gossip and reporting. The reason they were reporting to Paul is because they loved the church, they were concerned for the church, and they saw that there were things happening that weren't of God, and they couldn't help but say, that's wrong, Paul, help us, we don't know what to do. That's different than saying, Paul, come get on our side so that we can take these people out. And Paul says this, it's been reported to me, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household. I love this. This is the best thing. When someone says, who told you? Paul's like, oh, I'll tell you, Chloe told me. Can you imagine being Chloe? Like, oh crud, now everybody knows it was me in my house that we'd like, we're the ones that told. Paul's like, yeah, it's fine. You told the right thing. You, you, you caused a div- some divisiveness and that's fine because it was rightly divided. You told me some things that were important for me to know to help people. Thank you. That's not gossip. That's called love. It's called love when you have such compassion for the church, for the household that you're in, that you're like, I'm concerned for this person. I've talked to them. I've gone to them, Matthew chapter 18, one-on-one, and they won't deal with their sin. We've taken some other people. They won't deal with their sin. By the way, they were probably practicing that in this church. We went to the elders of the church, and the elders of the church won't deal with what's going on in these people's lives. We got no other option but to appeal, keep going up the chain of authority to now appeal to Paul. And that's exactly what happened. And he says there is rivalry among you. Look, there is nothing we love more as Americans and nothing more that Corinthians loved than a good rivalry, a good fight, right? How many of you like to just cause a little bit of fight sometimes in your relationships? Your parents, kids, your friends, maybe at work, you just, just pick a little bit. Like, yeah, let me pick that scab and see what happens, right? None of you, right? You're all righteous, unlike me, right? Like, you just feel that orneriness that sometimes comes up. Let me just pick a little fight here. Or someone says something to you, right, to pick a fight, and your response isn't to just listen and take it in. Your response is, oh, that's what we're doing now. Come back right at you, right? Paul is saying there is rivalry among you and there shouldn't be rivalry dividing you. It shouldn't be rivalry. Then he goes on and he says this. I'm sorry, Jude says it this way about people who cause rivalry and the foolishness. Jude 1.18 says, They told you in the end times there will be scoffers walking according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions, divisiveness, and are unbelievers. Paul says if people are divisive in the church, if they keep dividing, if they keep leaving and running, if that's their attitude, you need to question whether they really are in the family because family members don't check out on family members. They die for each other. Because Jesus didn't check out on his family. He allowed his family to crucify him and died for them. That's the message of the cross and that is foolishness to people. That's not winning. No, that's having full understanding of what we're called to do and full understanding that this is not the end. There's an eternity and there's a heaven coming. He says, they don't have the spirit. We'll look at that coming in a few weeks. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. The love of God is not just, oh, I just love everybody. The love of God is you actually have a love that's willing to confront and a love that's willing to die, to give yourself. 
He says, expecting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. If you truly have love for God, then you fully expect the mercy like Jesus did. I can go to the cross because I know that the mercy of God is on me. I know he will resurrect me. I know I have a future, so it doesn't matter. Have mercy on those who doubt. See, when Jude writes this, when Paul's talking about rivalry, he's writing this letter because he's saying, look, Jude writes the same thing. Some people are just doubting. Help them. Don't judge them. Don't like, like, be patient with them. Have mercy on others, but with fear. In other words, have mercy on them, but be careful not to let them too close because there's something not right. And then he says, hating even the garment or snatching some from the fire. That's the other one. Sorry, I skipped that one. There are some people that are literally heading off the cliff and you need to grab them and do an intervention before they go off the cliff. And then he says, hate even the garment defiled by the flesh. There's a difference between living between the spirit and the flesh. So this is what Paul says. He says, what I am saying about rivalry is this. Each of you says, this is verse 12, I am with Paul. Or I am with Apollos. Next slide, Coda. I am with Cephas. Or I am with Christ. Is Christ divided? See, Paul goes and he says, there's some of you who are saying, well, I listen to Paul because Paul came and planted this church and he's the one I listen to. There's some that say, I'm with Apollos. See, Paul was not a good preacher. Scholars don't believe Paul was a very good preacher. Matter of fact, at the conference we went to, and this story is you can read about it, but Paul actually caused someone to fall asleep one time, fall out of a window and die because he was so boring. True story. He resurrected the guy and then went back and kept preaching. I'm not kidding. It's in Acts. You can read the story. It's nuts. Apollos was known as an orator, a very gifted speaker, someone that kept your attention, had good pictures and stories and videos. And I mean, he was the guy you wanted to listen to, right? So they're like, yeah, I like Paul. Paul's a good guy. Oh, but if I could just listen to Apollos, if only John Piper could come to our church, right? And then he goes on and he says, or I'm with Cephas. That's Peter. Well, I like the, the Old Testament better, and, and Peter likes that Old Testament stuff. He, he, he does ministry to the Jews, and I, I'm more Jewish. And Cephas, you know, he, he's married too. Like, he's, not, he's got a wife, and Paul doesn't have a wife. I, I have a wife. I just relate better to Peter. Or you got the super spiritual people that are like, oh, I can't submit to anyone but Jesus. It's just me and Jesus. And Paul's like, all of those are wrong. He says, why are you trying to divide everything? Stop. We have the word. We have the Holy Spirit. We, why are we trying to be so divisive all the time instead of trying to figure out how to come together in very simple ways? He goes, was, Paul, was it Paul who crucified, was crucified for you? The answer to that is no, Jesus was. Paul's still alive, so he hasn't been crucified yet. Or were you baptized in Paul's name? Then he goes on, he says, I thank God I didn't baptize none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you could say you were baptized in my name. Oh, wait, I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know if I baptized anyone else. I love this. I love that the Bible has these kind of thoughts in it that God allows through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit for guys to just show they're normal, right? Like, Paul did not do a good job with his baptism record as a pastor. Bad job, Right? Like, I don't know who I baptized. I don't know. I'm not trying to. 
That's not what my focus is. I mean, I baptize people. It's not like he says, that's why I don't baptize anyone. No, the Bible says to baptize. We're to baptize and, and, and into the family. He's like, yeah, but I don't know. I don't keep track of that stuff. I keep track of whether people are still following and in Christ. That's what I keep track of. That's what understanding looks like. He goes on and he says in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to evangelize. Does that mean we don't baptize? No. But if we're so concerned about getting people baptized, are you ready for this? That we're not making sure that people are actually evangelized, we're giving a false hope and a false sense of salvation. And that happens everywhere. And it's dangerous. You just raise your hand and pray a prayer and you can get into heaven. I think Paul would have a problem with that message if you read 1 Corinthians. I'm not saying that we shouldn't ask people to make a commitment, but we should make sure that people have been evangelized, that they actually accepted Christ. I've told my testimony multiple times. I accepted Christ three times and was baptized three times before I actually accepted Christ and was baptized finally. Because I kept trying to get something and the churches I would go to, I'd walk the aisle and raise my hand and they'd clap and they'd baptize me and they'd send me off. Because the reason I was going to be baptized, are you ready for this? Was not because I truly wanted to surrender my life now to God. It was because I was in a mess and I wanted him to fix some problem in my life. And so I would go get baptized. That problem wouldn't get fixed. I'd get mad and say, well, God, if you're still up there, that's fine. But I'm going to do my life the way I want to. And then I would go through that process three separate times until finally I came to my lowest point wanting to take my own life freshman year of college. And I said, God, I'm done. You are Lord. Help me. Then someone shared the gospel with me in my lobby of my dorm. And it was like a light bulb went off. I knew it was different. The word of God came alive and it was like, this is real. This isn't like the other times. That's what Paul's talking about. We should make sure people are evangelized. Make sure they understand the gospel. That's what Paul's gonna do through this book. He says, not with clever words so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. He says, you've got a bunch of people running around using clever words, trying to make people feel better about themselves, motivational speakers. He goes, it just goes back to the simple message of the cross. Have you surrendered? Have you? And if you have, you don't need to doubt. If you've given your heart to Jesus, like Jude said, and you're doubting, that's fine. We need to encourage you. If you're struggling, then we need to help you in your struggle. But that's our job as, as Christians to other Christians. It's what we do with family members in our household, our children. But if you're trying to use clever tactics all the time to deal with things, instead of dealing with the cross and who Jesus is and people's identity in Christ, those clever tactics, I promise you, will fail every time. They will leave you empty. And that's what Paul is saying. I didn't come to you with all kinds of clever words. I just came to you simply saying, do you believe that Jesus was the God of the universe? That the plan of salvation was that he was going to take your place and be the substitutionary atonement and the substitutionary uh, sacrifice that was promised all the way back in Genesis? Do you believe that? Have you placed your faith in it? Have you said yes? And even if you doubt, you keep coming back to it. When you wrestle with sin, you come back to it. That you allow others in your life who have that same proclamation to speak into your life so that you can surrender more of your life. That's the sign. It's a simple message. 
And Paul says, I don't want the cross to be emptied of its effect. So what is the effect of the cross? Turn to Philippians chapter 2. This is the effect that embracing the cross in your life will have on you because this is the effect embracing the cross had on Jesus himself. Paul writes to the Philippian church and says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love. In other words, there's a way you shouldn't think. There's a love that isn't love, that looks like lust, not love. Remember, they're in the city of Corinth, which Aphrodite is the goddess of love. She's not the goddess of love. She's the goddess of lust. Sharing the same feelings, focused on the one goal. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. He goes on and he says, everyone should look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. Remember, Christ came to die on a cross, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used. See, that's what we want to do in our culture. We think we can just use God and use his laws and use his ways so that we can create a utopia here for ourselves. If we just all got back to the Ten Commandments, it would fix everything. No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. Because the heart's not changed. Are the Ten Commandments bad? No, they're great. They're good commandments. The question is, why are we doing them? Then he says, look at this. He didn't think to use it. Everything in our culture is sold on using. Even churches come here and use us. We'll serve you here and serve you there. And serve. It's not come and die with us. <laughs> come be crucified with us. Look at what Jesus says. He goes on. He says he didn't use it for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself. By assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men, and when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that the name of Jesus, remember what Jesus' name means, Yahweh saves, at the name of Yahweh saves, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess, it doesn't say they They do, it says they should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus came and he emptied himself. He didn't try to create division, he tried to create unity, but since everybody was already divided, they wanted no part of it. They had already picked their camps. They wanted no part of being told, you're not going to get what you think you're going to get. Everybody wanted to use Jesus. They wanted him to heal. They wanted him to feed. They wanted him to be their king. They all wanted to use him. And all Jesus wanted to do was to die for them, to give his life, and to tell them the truth about the glory of God and the love of God. Paul goes on in Philippians 1.15, or before this in Philippians 1.15, he says, to be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and strife, but others out of goodwill. These do so out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ, look at this word, there it is, out of rivalry, not sincerity, seeking to cause me anxiety in my imprisonment. Paul's in prison when he's writing this because he's been faithful to God. In our culture, if someone's in prison because they've been faithful to God, we question whether they really went there to prison because they were faithful to God. 
We automatically assume if someone's in prison in our culture, oh, they must have done something bad. Guess what? That was the same with the Romans. Roman culture was the same way. Oh, if Paul went to prison, he must have done something bad. There must be something we don't know. Because God wouldn't send somebody to prison. He goes on and he says, what does it matter? Just that in every way, whether out of false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Because I know this will lead to my deliverance through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. How does Paul know he's going to be delivered from prison? Did an angel come and like knock on his door and be like, Paul, I'm going to deliver you from prison? No. He knows he's going to be delivered one way or the other from his imprisonment. He's either going to be delivered, let go, and given more time on the earth, or he's going to be killed, and his imprisonment and his earthly body is over, and forever he is with his Lord. It's exactly what he's talking about. He knows that it doesn't matter. And he just wants to hear the name of Jesus preached. But he does call out false motives. Goes on and says this in Corinthians 1.18. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. That is, that's just a dumb statement. Read it again. A cross was an electric chair. It was an, it was an execution device. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But if you're on a cross, you're already perishing. So the cross is fool. So if I'm dying for the cross, then am I, am I a fool? No. He says, no, no, no. It's God's power to those who are being saved. In other words, do you understand that when you're dying, when you're giving your life, that there is something greater, something more? That, that's the point. That it is foolishness to people. Like, I don't want to die. I don't want to give my life. I don't want to suffer. That's foolishness. No, it's not. You don't have an option. You're going to die anyway. You might as well die for something that's more important than you. Something bigger than you. For the God of the universe to give your life. That's what Jesus did. So what did he give us the power to do? It says that it's the power to those who are being saved. So do I get like lightning bolts? Do I get like superhero powers? Like if I trust Jesus, I get the Holy Spirit and then I can like pop people in the head and heal them? Is that, is that what this means? Like I got power? Power, wonder working power? Like is that, is that, no. Look at the power Jesus talks about. Matthew 24, 9 says, then they will hand you over to the persecution. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will take offense, betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. That's what Paul was talking about. Because lawlessness will multiply and the love of many will grow cold. That's true love. They'll go to a false love. But the one who endures to the end will be delivered. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. See, the power that you receive, are you ready for this? Is the power to represent God in the midst of this kind of mess. That's the actual power that when the rest of the world is running around foolishness, doesn't know what to believe, trust this expert, that expert, it falls through, and all this kind of stuff, we as believers say, no, 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 there's an end coming and there is someone I can trust because he died and came back to life. And that's where I place it. And Paul says that's the power we have is to go make him known to the world. 
If you aren't making Christ known and, and talking about him, can I just tell you, you might want to question if you really believe in him. Because I've found that the people I care about and the people that I'm close to, I can't help but talk about them. We became grandparents last Saturday. I can't help, I had four pictures in my slides I was gonna show you guys, just randomly, like have a picture up here and be like, look, a baby, and then go on with my next point, and I decided not to do that. I might spring that on you, though, because, you know, I'm in charge of this, you know, here, there's a picture of my new grandbaby, she's beautiful. Like, Ellington Hazel, amazing, right? Like, amazing that God brings life into this messy world. Amazing that God would, would, would multiply our lives in such a way that we can have an impact beyond ourselves. You see, the good news, it's, I have a grandbaby, that is good news. Are you excited about Christ? Do you talk about him? Paul couldn't help but tell people how God changed his life. Paul was the most righteous Pharisee you could find with all kinds of power and even was a Roman citizen, which was rare to have as Jews. And he said, none of that matters, just Jesus. That should be our heart as believers. And the Corinthian church didn't have that. And Jesus said, people will see through a false belief. 1 Corinthians 1.19 says, For it is written, Paul says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will set aside the understanding of the experts. Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? I think the last two years, this is pretty true. read an article this week of a woman at the beginning of the pandemic that was trying to convince the world, literally, the World Health Organization, the CDC, that COVID was an aerosol. That, that, that five microns, wherever that came from, was not a right belief. And she couldn't find where the five micron belief came from. So she actually spent the next 18 months researching. When she found it and wrote it, she was dismissed as a conspiracy theorist. This was a scientist. She's not a Christian. She's not a believer. She just couldn't stand to, to see this. And she fought and she fought all the way through the pandemic to get people to see what was happening and to get people to see that the five microns that we trusted in, the actual scientist didn't actually believe that. He believed something different. But we kind of made this dogma, this number, and then we've built everything on it. And she's like, it's not good. And that's why you saw the science start to change over the last several months. Is because they finally listened to this woman, and when she heard the news, she's from Hong Kong, when she heard the news, she broke down in her, in her apartment, she collapsed and just wept that the truth was finally out there, that wouldn't be listened to by the world experts. And she said, I just wept. I didn't rejoice. I was just so broken and tired. Guys, we have a Bible. We have a God that has clearly told us some things. And if we keep latching on to this article and that and this and that, we are going to get dogmas that don't allow us to serve God and give our lives to people. We're going to be all about trying to protect ourselves and keep what's ours. And if we do that, oh God, please don't let us do that. Does that mean we act irresponsibly? No. Read the Old Testament. There's a lot of responsible laws in there about how to deal with disease. It's not like we've come up with this on our own. God told his people thousands of years ago how to deal with stuff because he loved them. He cared about them. 
But can I tell you, just like Paul is seeing these rivalries and everybody's trying to use one another in this Corinthian church and trying to get their way and their message, we are in the same mess and we have got to get back to believing this kind of stuff. Verse 21, for since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, the world doesn't understand God's wisdom. The world did not know God. God was pleased to save those who believed through the foolishness of the message preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, the cross. A stumbling block to the Jews because they don't want to die. They want a Messiah to come and kick the Romans out and take over. And it's a foolishness to the Gentiles because the Gentiles want a good life too. And the common message of the Jews and the Gentiles, you ready for this, is if you listen to me, we'll give you a good life. Follow my wisdom and my science and I can promise you a good life. I can promise you this. I can promise you that. I can promise you a good retirement. I can promise you this. Nobody wants to promise the cross. I can promise you that God will take you to the very end of yourself and then he will give him, give you himself and it's better than anything. That's not a message we want to hear. It's not a message that sells books. It's not a message and Paul says, that's why you have this rivalry. You're ignoring the cross and it's just a stumbling block. He goes on and he says, yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power, there's that power again, and God's wisdom, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. It doesn't mean that God is foolish. It means when people look at God and say, oh, that's dumb, that's foolish, we don't understand what that means. He says, no, 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 it's wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers, look at this, consider your calling God has called out to you. I remember when I was in my dorm room and I fell on my face and I said, God help. And my call was actually a literal phone call. 30 minutes later, a call came through the line from a student involved with a Christian group and was like, hi, would you like to talk about spiritual things? That's a calling. I can't deny, right? But there's other callings. God may have called you to be in a home that raised you to believe in Christ. That is a miracle. He says, not many are wise from a human perspective. Not many are powerful. Not many of noble birth. Most of you in this room are not wise from a human perspective. I love you guys. I'm not either. Like, there are people so much smarter than you and me. Like, like I see all these people getting accepted to college, and I kind of laugh sometimes because I'm like, college wants your money. They're not really into telling you, you can't come here because you're dumb. They want cash. They're incentivized to let you come, right? Like, yeah, you got accepted. That's great. Like, he goes on and he says, consider your calling. How many of you are very powerful? Like, you have power? Like, you walk out in your neighborhood and you're like, hello, I'm speaking. And your neighbors come out and listen. None of you. You can't even do that in your own apartment or in your own home. Everybody looks at you like you're nuts and rolls their eyes. Oh, my gosh, here goes dad again. Right? None of you, how many of you have been noble birth? Like how many of you have traced your ancestry back and found some noble birth? Maybe, maybe you have. Were you born nobly now? No, I don't think any of you were born nobly. I wasn't even, Paul's like, look, this is a no-brainer. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish. That's you. Yay. 
Hello, fellow fool. Welcome to FX Church. Right? He's chosen what is foolish. Here's the, here's the great part. In the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He's, he's taken and, and, and taken people and been like, how could he get where I, that, to, I mean, have you ever seen a couple, you know, what I mean, you know what I'm saying? You ever seen a couple and you're like, how does she with him, right? Or you're like, how did he, I, okay, there must be a God, right? Like, there are just those moments where God loves to get the glory. That's just unexplainable. Other than I was faithful and God just kept doing what God does. That's what Paul's talking about. Because this Corinthian church is trying to find a shortcut. I'm with Apollos. I'm with Cephas. I do this. I do that. I'm going to do this financial plan. I'm going to do that one. We're going to get this shortcut and then look at me. And Paul's like, no. It's about the cross. Then he goes on and he says, God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What is viewed as nothing. To bring to nothing what is viewed as something. In other words, he humbles us so that no one can boast in his presence. There's the kicker. The reason they have this rivalry, the reason there's not unity is because they're constantly boasting about some belief, some person they know, some way of life they have. They're constantly trying to get a boast out there so that you'll like it. Welcome to social media. It's always amazing to me that I very rarely see people posting garbage on social media about their personal lives. And yet when you see the writers of the New Testament, they talk about how useless they are and how broken they are and how big of a mess they are. Paul would be posting pictures in prison. I'm in prison! Yay! Celebrate with me! Hit like! Like, like, ah! I don't know if I want to like some guy that's in prison. Like, I don't want people to see that I'm liking that. I move on. I'll pray for Paul. Like, He goes on and he says, but it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became God's given wisdom for us. Jesus is our righteousness. He's our sanctification. He's our redemption. We can't make ourselves right. We can't get it right. We can't make ourselves holy or make ourselves better. He has to do it. We can't redeem ourselves because we got nothing to buy with, yet he redeems us. And he says in order that as it is written, here it is, the division comes on the word of God. As it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. And I'm telling you, if you boast in Christ in this culture today, you are going to be looked at as a fool. And people are going to question whether you understand the reality of life. If you're trusting in this 2,000-year-old message, and it's even older than that, in this God-faith thing, James 1, 4 says, what is the source of the wars and the fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. You do not have because you do not ask. Oh, yeah, I do. I ask. Oh, hold on. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. Ouch. That is so true. That is so true. Do we really ask for what God wants? Do we even know what God's prayers are? What his desires are for our life? Or do we just say prayers all the time and get mad when they're not answered? James, 2 Timothy says it this way. Paul was writing to Timothy as he was turning over the church to him. And he said, remind them of these things, Timothy. Charging them before God not to fight about words. 
There, this is no way profitable and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. But avoid irreverent, empty speech, for this will produce an even greater measure of godlessness, and their word will spread like gangrene. Later on in the book, he says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped or complete, equipped for every good work. Paul says, if you want to know if you're foolish, if you have understanding, go back to the word of God. Listen to your words. What do you say? How do you say it? What's your motive of your heart? That's what Paul goes back to. And then in 1 Corinthians 2.1, Paul wraps up with this as he's talking about this in the church. When I came to you, brothers, announcing the testimony of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom, for I didn't think it was a good idea to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, Paul was going to Corinth. Let's remember what Corinth was. One of the most intellectual cities in the Roman Empire. One of the richest cities in the Roman Empire, and Paul came with nothing. And he said, you know what? I'm not even going to take a salary. I'm going to work as a bivocational tent maker so that you can't even use that against me. I'm going to look so foolish to these rich, wealthy, well-fed, taken care of, smart Corinthians. Because I don't want them to be deceived that I'm bringing a Jesus that's going to make them richer or make them healthier or a Jesus that's going to pay off for them in the end in this life. I want to bring the true gospel to them. And these people are so wicked and so deceived, it's going to take everything I've got to get them to see something different. And everything Christ has in me through his spirit to get them to see something different. And he says, I came just telling you about Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness. I came to you in fear and in much trembling. Can I just tell you that's evangelism 101. There's never been a time that I've shared my faith that I haven't had Weakness, fear, and trembling. It happens every time. Because I know as soon as I start to give this message, as soon as I start to talk, there's no turning back. I'm, I'm gonna put it out there. And there's no like, oh, you really believe that. Like, like the relationship's gonna be affected if I truly give what God wants to give. And he goes on and he says, my speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit so that your faith might not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. What does it mean to have a demonstration of the Spirit? Well, what does the Bible say about the Spirit? Demonstrating itself. The Holy Spirit always comes to reveal the Son, Jesus said. The Holy Spirit always comes to glorify Christ, the Bible says. So he came only making sure that he was glorifying Christ in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes, and Galatians 5 says what about the Holy Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That was Paul's demonstration of the Spirit. It wasn't healings. It wasn't crazy tongues. It wasn't all, it was, no, I just came. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I demonstrated that the Spirit was working in me through my life, and I made Christ known, period. Because that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit uses love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control as defined by God to make Jesus known to others, period. That's a powerful demonstration of the Spirit. 
And if you're doing that on a daily basis, if that's your prayer, if you're asking God to do that, you are a powerhouse for him. It may not seem like it. it may, you may not understand, but I am telling you, you are a powerhouse if you're willing to live the cross, if you're willing to embrace this and say, God, I am yours. And he says, if you do that, it'll be clear to everyone that your wisdom isn't based on man's wisdom, but you are really trusting Jesus. <laughs> People would be like, man, that guy really trusts Jesus. He didn't know anything, but he trusts Jesus. And Paul says, that's exactly why I came. I don't want you to be foolish. I want you to have true understanding. Let me ask you this morning. This last passage that I'm going to show you comes from our Lord and Savior. And he says this. And Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come with me, Remember, the temple prostitutes in Corinth would leave the temple at night and they would walk. And there are stories told in the Roman historians that they actually would have things on their shoes that would, that would distinguish them so they would walk through the dirt and you could actually follow the path of that prostitute you wanted to find. Because you could distinguish their brand on their shoes or sandals as they walked through the city and you could track them to go find them. Jesus said, will you follow me like that? And if you want to, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to try to not find me so you can get something, but find me because you don't have anything left. And you're going to have to take up your cross like I took up mine, and you're going to follow me. And he says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world? yet loses his life? Or what will a man gain in exchange for his life? Can I just tell you, Paul is writing and he's trying to get this Galatians church to, or this uh, Corinthian church to understand that there is a foolishness that is constantly calling you. You live in Corinth and there are fools running around trying to get you to buy into everything. It's a merchant city. There's every commercial on TV, they're selling you something that's going to fix your problem. Right? And then they have their disclaimer at the bottom of the screen, how it's going to kill you. <laughs> God says, I'm just going to tell you that there are real problems, and you're going to die. But is there something you're living for? Is there something you're surrendered to? Is there, is there an understanding you have that you're chasing because you don't want to be a fool? Can I just ask you, have you surrendered to the cross? Have you asked Christ to be the Lord and Savior of your life? If you have, celebrate that right now. Celebrate that when you read this, you're not someone that Paul's writing to because he's upset or he has to. You're someone Paul's writing to to encourage you to keep fighting for the people who aren't there yet. You, you've got to work, you've got a job to do because there are people who aren't here yet. There are fools running around without understanding and you get to be that person that goes to them. Man, celebrate that. Don't feel like, oh, why do I have to? Feel like I get to. I'm a part of a family. This is awesome. There are people running around that don't have family. The families are divided. It's a mess out there and I've got that. So if you know Christ, man, you should be grateful right now that he loves you, that he's given you a purpose, that he's given you a church family, that, man, celebrate that. And if you don't know him, can I just tell you, consider what Paul says. There isn't another option. 
You will carry a cross. The question is, will it be one of your own demise that you brought on yourself, like the two thieves on either side of Jesus? Or will it be one in which, no, I don't deserve necessarily a cross, but I pick it up because of the two thieves on either side of Jesus? I'm willing to to bear what he bore because I understand the end game. I understand. I don't want to be a fool when I stand before God one day, and I want people to understand what I understand. And man, I can't wait for people to know that. See, Paul could have stopped his message in verse 9. He said, go home and have a good life. And Paul says, but there's some things I have to address. So let me ask you this morning, have you trusted him in? What areas aren't you trusting and why? And will you stop the rivalry in your heart and just surrender? I know it's there. I have it in my own heart. And just say, Lord, I serve you. And I have a home with you And I can trust you no matter what we go through. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you for this letter that is so timely for our our day. Lord, I think of the people joining online. I think of the people that are in this room. And Lord, my heart just, I just want them to boast in you. I know how hard that is when you're struggling, when you're sick, when you're, you're upset about how your life's turned out or There's tension in marriages and conflict. And Lord, I know that it can be difficult to to, to find anything good and then to just say, forget it. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage people this morning as Paul was writing to encourage. Show them that if they have trusted you, that you are with them and that you're trying to do something in them that they can't do in themselves. And Father, if there's people here this morning who who don't know you like me, they've walked the aisle three times, they've prayed a prayer, they've been baptized, but deep down inside, they just haven't come to that place like Paul says where it's like, okay, I'm done. I surrender. I embrace the cross. I I get it. Lord, I pray today would be the day they do it. They would come to you and just say, you know what? I've been pretending. I've been trying to get on this person's team and that person's team and this denomination and that religious belief and this speaker and that speaker and I'm just done. I just want to hear from you. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone out there that they would just ask you to come in and you promise that if they ask by faith, you will come in. They don't have to doubt it. They don't have to think, well, maybe I said the right words. It's not about any of that. It's about the heart. And so Lord, would you be calling people to yourself in this moment? And Lord, I do pray for us that as we take on this word, I pray that we would go out from here and we would boast about you. There's a lot to complain about. There's a lot to be mad about. There's a lot of confusion. But Lord, would you help us to boast about you in the midst of it? Because that's what Paul was able to do shipwrecked. It's what he was able to do working bivocationally. It's what he was able to do when he was in prison is that he just kept boasting about who you were, what you did to change him, and where he was headed. And I pray that would be our message. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for this time, and we're grateful in your name. Amen.